I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we- Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. So welcome back to United States of Dramerica for what should be quite a fun episode. Welcome to the podcast. One of the lead handicappers in, I think, in all of horse racing in America and um, the broadcaster at the New York Racing Association. Welcome to the podcast, Andy Serling. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I hope it's entertaining. I hope at least one of us is entertaining. So look, I think the best place to start, we've done a lot of sort of COVID-related stuff on this podcast. So in April... I, as a big sports fan and as somebody who doesn't mind a bet, was left with Nicaraguan and Belarus soccer and a bit of horse racing from, I think, Florida and Oklahoma. And that was basically the only sport happening. And I found that a frustrating period. What must have that been like for you? Plus, obviously, living in New York as well when things were pretty bad. So tell me about your your April. You, 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 you basically summed up my life. Um Without the, the Belarusian soccer, um, <laughs> I, uh, we well we covered we in New York we raced until I think the weekend of like March fifteenth or something, and at that point, racetracks were starting to stop racing. I think on California, I think Santa Anita had stopped racing at that point. Um, you mentioned Oklahoma, Oakland Park actually in Arkansas is what kept racing. Um, uh, they didn't have COVID in Arkansas at that point. Um, apparently, and and Florida as well. And Florida kept racing straight through. They never stopped racing. And I mean, they were still in New Orleans, but for the most part, it was Oakland Park in, in Arkansas and, and Florida. And we were fortunate enough to be able to cover some of that because we do shows on the weekends a bit during the winter. And when rate when when all the sports stopped, obviously, you know, the the Fox Sports, they they were, you know, they wanted um, content and there was racing content. Unfortunately, we had this relationship with them. So we did these weekend shows covering the Oakland racing, covering some race in Florida, though. That didn't last, I don't think, throughout the whole winter. But so we would do them on, I think, Saturdays, Sundays, maybe Friday, Saturday, Sundays and cover them. And brought different people of us were in our house. We had people out in the studio out in, out in L.A. at Santa Anita. Um, but a number of us, including myself, did it from our house back right where I'm sitting with you. Um, and we, we covered the racing and, and it was, that was good for us. You know, it's still some work to do. And unlike a lot of people is actually working and, and, and racing kept running through the pandemic. And in actuality, we might have might have been one of those rare moments in horse racing where we seem to do things fairly well. We managed to race in safe environments and we managed to keep racing going at least somewhat. And we didn't start racing, though, again. Uh, in New York live until the end of June. So in that April and May period, I know I wasn't the only one watching horse racing at tracks that I didn't, I think, even know existed <laughs> before COVID. And I know I had a guest on earlier on who ran a sports betting company. He was saying when there was nothing else to bet on, people who wanted a bet 
were were betting on some of these races because you know English horse racing had completely stopped at the time. Do, do you think you know in a sort of twisted way there were some new fans brought to American horse racing during that period because frankly there was nothing else on? I actually do. Um, and, and I'm loathe to, you know, I don't like to just sort of jump in and take the company line. Oh, yeah, we got all sorts of new customers and stuff. But I think we did. I mean, if you look at the numbers, I believe that June, July, and I guess the third quarter. So what, what, what is that? Um, July, August, and September. I think the national handle was up 12% over last year with less actual racing. So, I mean, Baseball came back and basketball came back in, in what, the end of July or something. So for the most part, there were other sports going on. Football started in, in early September. So the fact that we were up, it's hard to deny that we did attract some new players somewhere. I think the, the question is, and it's always the eternal question, especially for us, can we keep these people? Mm. We got some new people and we have a bad habit of, of getting new people, but not giving them what they need to stick around or maybe even increase their playing. And in reality, that's really the, the, the chore. It's great that we've got new people watching, but they're watching, right? Because they have everything else to do like you. And mm. we need to find a way. I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe I think horse racing is incredibly interesting. Obviously, I've given my entire life to it sort of. But, you know, it's, it's everybody doesn't like it. The question is, are there people out there that would like racing? Have we now got a chance to get some of their attention and can we find a way to keep it? So you have devoted a great part of your life to horse racing. And I know I, I, I want to talk to you about the time you were, you were working in, in banking and wall street, but in terms of racing, what was the appeal for you, you know, as a child, what first drew you to this sport of Kings? <laughs> well, I, my family moved to Saratoga Springs, New York, which is upstate New York where there's a great racetrack. And it's this small town of 25, 30,000 people. And we moved there when I was 11 and I had no interest in racing at all. My dad used to go to the track. We lived in New Jersey. I never, I went with a bike once or something. And the racetrack in Saratoga, for those that aren't familiar, is basically right in the middle of the town. You know, the town itself is a downtown area, which is great, but it's literally a walking mile from the downtown area to the actual racetrack. So it's right there. And it's this great old place that feels like it's sort of the town that time forgot, the racetrack that time forgot. And my dad when it first started racing the first summer we were there, we were in town for a year. My dad would get out of work and he'd want to go over to the last race because I had a trifecta only back in the last race. This was the 1970s. So he would want to go over to the last race and bet that. So he'd ask me after work, hey, you want to come over and take a walk over? We were living a few blocks away. And I'm like, okay, sure. And I went over and all of a sudden it was like, wow, there's like this amazing place here. You know, it really, I would, I would say in a lot of ways, if you like racing, it's the equivalent of, name your favorite ball team and you live in this town with 25,000 people and they take the entire month of August and they move their team to your town and they play and all the other big teams, the best players all come to your town to play. And suddenly, cause it's the big leagues and racing, the best trainers, the best jockeys, best horses, all this stuff. And it's this amazing place where people who have nothing are mingling quite normally with people who have, you know, zillions of dollars. So it's this unusual place and it's beautiful and the horses are beautiful, but also beyond that. So I see this place, right? I go there and I think, wow, this place is amazing. I got to go to this place. It's all these people here. I didn't realize there's like 15,000 people right down the street from my house and this big grandstand, this old cool place and numbers. I, I like numbers and, you know, what's great about following sports, you know, why do so many people like sports, you know, think about sabermetrics now with baseball and stuff. It's numbers. 
And I quickly realized that racing is about numbers. Not only are these horses and this cool stuff going on, but it's about numbers. So I very quickly fell in love with it. And I'm, a, I'm an obsessive personality. And as a kid, and I, now all my life, and I just immediately started following racing obsessively. And fortunately for me, not long after this, in the spring of the following year, Andy Beyer, who's well-known in racing circuits, wrote a book called Picking Winners. And it's this really funny book. This guy is this really great writer. And he said, oh, yeah, you can make your living at the racetrack. And I thought, I knew you could make your living at the racetrack. And that was sort of the end of my life. <laughs> Beginning or the ending of my life, depending on how you look at it. So, you know, I, I love horse racing. I've been, I've been going for years. I must be 20 years now. I've been watching horses and betting on horses. Obviously not to the levels you do. But I remember trying to explain it to my parents. And they don't get it. They don't see that the race is very exciting. So they think they think it's just about the betting. And obviously, the betting in relation to the sport is almost everything. Compared to other sports, there is betting on sport. But horse racing, betting is a much deeper part of it than probably any other sport. And so for them, they don't understand. And I've never been managed to explain that to them. So explain how the whole sport really is intertwined with betting. But yet still, that's a good thing. You know, it's it's a, it's actually a great question, and, it, and it's probably something that we have never really sort of mastered. I think one of the things we we can do in, in our in New York, you know, in Naira, we run Saratoga in the summer, and then we run Belmont and Aqueduct the rest of the year. Um, but Saratoga is the one place where a ton of people go. The other tracks, even you know, during normal times when we can actually allow people in, uh, it's a fairly modest attendance, to be kind. But Saratoga is packed all the time. And so people come to Saratoga, right? They get invited to the track. They're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is great. There's all these people. There's lots of young men, young women, you know, depending who you are, go out there. And, you know, it's just like lots of excitement. And it's like lots of people. And my mother, who was, you know, not happy as I was pursuing this life at the racetrack, but now is very happy because I have a job and doing well. And she likes the whole thing. She comes to track signs me in Saratoga and I have a friend who has a nice box and sometimes we'd sit in the box and watch the races. And I remember about five years ago, we were sitting in the box and a race was going off and the field was charging down the stretch in the turf. And Saratoga, it's like Santa Anita. You're fairly close to the action if you're in the grandstand. And the horse coming out of the stretch, a beautiful day. And my mom turned to me and she said, you know, sitting here, watching all these horses, seeing this, I kind of get it now. I kind of understand the excitement. The problem is we're sitting in this incredibly beautiful setting in Saratoga in a very exclusive box area watching it. And so, okay, on a very elite level in a very, uh, almost a perfect ideal situation, we can sell it to my mom to understand it. I don't think if she was sitting at Aqueduct, you know, in the first floor of the grandstand with, with, you know, watching on a bunch of TVs, if she would have that same feeling. So how do you sort of transpose that feeling of being in Saratoga, the magic of Saratoga, into getting people to understand the magic of racing without necessarily be there or without the beauty of an exciting afternoon at Santa Anita, a beautiful day at Saratoga, Del Mar, which you have out there. I don't know exactly. I think you have to capture people's imagination and gambling. And I think as sports betting becomes more legal, we can talk about this later, sports is struggling too to get people into the fans. You know, you talk about baseball, football, and you know, how are they getting people into the stadiums? And gambling can change that because once they've got gambling going, and you know it's going to happen, people will be sitting in seats with iPads and they'll be making intergame bets on uh, on the games, you know, between pitches, 
whatever it is, basketball, football, between plays. And in racing, there isn't as much action because only a race every half hour, but we need to find a way to keep people interested in it and get people more involved. And obviously with more tracks going on, we can do it, but it's not easy because it's a, it's a, it's a tough learning curve in horse racing. Yeah, and it's interesting. I remember I've, um, I used to go, when I, I'm from the UK and we used to go to the tracks there a lot. And there's, there's a great flow to the day because you're right, there's, the races are about every 30 minutes. But if you do it, if you do it properly, you know, you, you've got your form guide, you pick your horse, you go to the window, you queue up a little bit, line up a little bit, you come back, you get into position, you watch the race. You know, you either rip your ticket up or you have to line up again and you're reading the guide and then you put your next bet on and that half an hour goes very quickly. Plus, obviously, you've got to get drinks in between. And it, it does seem to work. I mean, for me, a lot of the charm is being there and it's the it's the drinking and going to the window. Even if you've got the app, it's quite nice to pass money both directions through a window. That view of horse racing, will that change because we've had to do a whole season without people live? Do you think it is it's going to become more about TV and apps than it is about the joy of the race itself? It's funny. You know, I was thinking as you were asking the question and thinking about it, we're already there. I mean, racing's somewhat of a theater, right? We've already, I mean, we just don't get that many people except, I mean, Santa Anita, think of how many big crowds they used to get. They don't get huge crowds anymore. Belmont Park's very similar in that way. Um, but Saratoga, Del Mar, we get crowds, Keeneland and Kentucky. Um, so for the most part, we're already there where people weren't going that much and they were betting at home and they were watching on TV or they're watching on their computers. But I almost wonder if it's something that you can help turn around at least a little bit after the pandemic, assuming there is that nebulous, hopefully after the pandemic, hmm. um, People are going to want to go to social situations, right? I mean, I think we're all dying to go and back and get involved in some social situations before. So maybe it could help a little bit, at least in the short term. I don't know the long term, but I think if you can get people to the track, I always feel like this and where seeing the horses in the paddock, being there with friends, having a drink, having some fun. I think they'll understand the appreciation of it. But at the moment, so it's it's you and the crews and so on there and obviously all the, the horse people, but there's no fans. When we first started, it was literally the TV people, whatever's in the TV truck, the few of us on the air, you know, the people who work with the horses, the backstretch that brought them to the paddock, the jockeys, their valets who take their tack, and the guys at the starting gate and the guys with the lead punch, you know, very, a smattering of people. Now owners are allowed. So there's a few owners out at Belmont Park, but it's it's pretty sparse. Yeah. What's the atmosphere? Obviously on TV, it projects very well, but, you know, when you're sort of walking around, is it? What's it feel like? It's really weird. It's it's really weird. Saratoga was really weird because mm. you're used to this place that's just full of people and there's nobody there. And like, there's just nobody besides, you know, a few owners were there and the trainers, the jockeys and you and a few people working there. It's, I mean, I was on TV, fortunately or unfortunately for about three to four hours a day, sometimes more. So I didn't, it didn't matter as much. But walking around, it's lonely and sad, and, and you feel bad. I mean, Saratoga is a place. It's like any of these places, like a Wrigley Field or a Fenway Park or these sort of famous, you know, places where the, the fans take a kind of ownership um, of, of the whole situation. And fortunately for us, we have that in Saratoga. So it's really lousy. You know, I'm walking to work, and I see people, and they're like, yeah, I wish we could come in and stuff. And you're thinking, I wish you could come in too, but, and it's, it's rough. And, and it, it was, it was hard. It was, it was sad and it was hard. 
Right, look, um, talking of sand and hard, let's have a drink um, before we keep going. So um, what, what whisk, normally we share a whiskey live, but obviously this is on Zoom. So what, what have you got at your end? I'm drinking Blanton's, which is, you know, a really great whiskey. So how can I not drink a, a bourbon that has, um, that has a horse on top of it? And it's funny, you know, I have the Blanton's, but in, if you go to Kentucky, you can find some random bourbons. And like I got a couple bottles in my kitchen. I don't even remember the name off. It's like from Rand, like ancient times or something. And it's um, apparently it's the, it's the runoff from Blanton's. Okay. It's the it's the bourbon they don't use, but it's still really good. And it's also incredibly cheap. So if you go to Kentucky, you can get all sorts of, you know, interesting bourbons. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think because there's literally a horse on top of the Blanton's bottle, I think they they class as the horse racing whiskey. But I know like Maker's Mark do a special yeah. colour, wax and so on. Um, at my end, I don't have any Blanton's, although I've just ordered some because I realised I didn't have any. So I'm, I'm opening up a bottle of a Knob Creek single barrel, which is Knob Creek's 24 and a half miles from Churchill Downs. So it's, you know, it's proximate to the racing. So uh, let me just... Uh, Pour myself a little glass. Um, I've, I've, I've never got any of the tours, you know, they have in these places. I've been in Kentucky, and I really, I should do that um, when, when we're allowed to go back to places. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, cheers. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me. So let's let's talk about a bit bit more about the uh, the racing stuff. So obviously, you know, you are an expert, um, and people follow your tips. Um, now, I think I'm right in saying that your your sort of win percentage broadly is about one in four. Is that right? Over a decent sample size? Maybe. Um, maybe. I don't know. You know, it, it, it's it's such a it's a hard thing to gauge because if, if I had my way and not to protect myself because I really don't care, I wouldn't even give out picks. But people want picks, so you give them, we give them four picks a race. We have superfectas with four picks. Um, you know, some people just want to know, you know, I like the two, four, and the five or something. And that's fine. You know, you want to give the people, fans, what they want. But I think racing is so much more important than that. I think that, is, that, that what we try to do is, is tell people why. Why and why not, right? You know, why, you know, the, the most important thing in looking at a race is to, to, to establish where you are with the favorite, Right. You know, what do you think of the favorite? Do you think he's just has to sort of win or do you think he's really a vulnerable horse? So I go from there. So at the end of the day, your win percentage is now you make money. If I give you one in four winners, but they pay $4, then I suck, basically. Um, at least if I give you one in five winners and that average price is $9, you're losing a little bit. So I kind of suck, but not as badly as the guy who's giving out a bunch of even money shots and only half of them are winning. So, I mean, to me... Well, I, believe me, I wish I picked nine winners a day. I have a gigantic ego and I suffer when I'm stupid. Um, I had this amazing day yesterday. I gave out seven of my nine top selections finished second and none of them were the favorite. And I thought that was almost a mathematical impossibility. It was just sort of random. But I, I, I try to, you want to engage people and make it so they find the race more interesting, right? You want people to be engaged in the race and the idea for me is I want to try to, when I can, find alternatives without pressing. You know, I don't just look at a race and say, oh, I'm going to bet against the favorite and I'm going to find somebody. No, if the favorite's really likely to win, I'll make it pretty clear that I'm not looking to try to beat that horse. But when you find some vulnerability, you try to find some things that maybe aren't sort of obvious to people. 
So more than that, I want to try to create a situation where I, you get people to look. I, I want people to listen to what we're saying on our shows and say, I don't have any problem with somebody saying, Andy's an idiot. I don't agree with him at all. I like the three. He likes the seven. That's great. As long as people are listening and whether they decide to listen to me or they listen to me and say, this doesn't make any sense to me, I see it this way. Because first of all, there's a bunch of ways to get to a winner. There's many more ways to get to a loser. Um, but I think you want to get people thinking about the race and maybe thinking about it in a way that they hadn't originally thought about it. Yeah, and that makes sense. Because obviously, you know, for those who don't know what they're doing, the favorite sounds like they should win, but obviously that's not how... <laughs> sports percentages work but and obviously depending on the race you know the, in an average meet the favorites would win less than half the time oh yeah i think around 30 i mean it depends if the racing's competitive it'll be under 30 percent, but somewhere in that range you know 25 to a, a third to a quarter somewhere in that obviously, again if you if you sort of if you're sensible and you know what you're doing then you know you take you listen to what people say you hear what you want to hear, and then you make your decisions. Dare I say, not everybody is that sensible. So um, <laughs> I know um, I know you're a basketball fan. Obviously, like Danny Green from the Lakers and his fiance both got death threats after he missed a relatively open three at the aim of Game Five. Given that you're it giving, it was worth killing him, didn't it? Yeah, felt like it was worth killing him for that, didn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Particularly because they won the next game anyway. But um, <laughs> you know, you've got thirty odd thousand followers on Twitter. Presumably, there are plenty of people who take exception to tips you give and assume that, you know, and then bet amounts they can't afford and then blame you. Is that a thing that happens now? I don't think the people that are sounding off to me on Twitter are betting that much money. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs> I'm going to take a wild stab at that. You know, Twitter's such a funny thing. I, I, you know, you feel like there's so much that could be written about social media. Um, comedically especially and you think of yourself and your relationship to social media and I think we're all evolving on social media right because we've been involved with it for umpteen periods of times and I joined Twitter in 2009 and the one thing I said to the then people are running Naira we've been through a few regimes in that year in the last 11 years um, was okay I'll go on and do this but people can be really nasty and you know I, I'm only going to take so much and if people are nasty I'll be able to give it back to them it's like yes you know you don't have to just sit there as a punching bag. So over time, there used to be no mute button. You either had to block somebody or put up with it. So I blocked a lot of people at the beginning. Now I mostly mute them. And I find that I don't need to put up with somebody who's just, I don't mind somebody who says, you know, I don't agree with your pick before the race. I think it's a bad pick, whatever. This is what I like. I'm all for that. I love the disagreements for the race. I don't need people coming out after race and telling me what an idiot I am because I gave out a loser. First of all, I'm fully aware of what an idiot I am. Second of all, the loser had nothing to do with my being an idiot. And third of all, life is too short to put up with that. I like Twitter. I like the engagement with people. I love people who disagree with me and give me a hard time as long as it's done in a, in a, in a reasonably positive manner. That's a very naive request to make to the world of Twitter, but I feel yes. the right one. So you, and I know you've been asked this question before, but you obviously, you bet as well as appear on TV talking about it. Is that because you, you feel you need to bet to be able to sort of justify your position or because you actually enjoy a bit of a punt? It's both. I like to bet. I've been betting on the horses now for uh, 45 years. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, there was a time when I really was, a you know, I really liked to bet a lot of money. I bet there were times when I was betting thousands of dollars a day. Those times are bad. I, I find now, 
I bet enough to be engaged, but I don't bet so much that it's going to affect my performance on TV. None of the people I work with need to deal with me when I'm in a really foul mood. They have to deal with that occasionally, not fortunately not as much as they used to. Um, I'd like to think. <laughs> you don't want it when they, you know, they, they cut back to you after the race and your your head is in your hand or, you know. Right, right. Okay. Yelling and swearing at some jockey. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I also feel very strongly that there's way too many people that have my job in racing that don't bet. And I think it's absolutely wrong to be telling people on television at whatever level, you know, simulcast TV, most are racing or, or simulcasts of races and say bet on the three and not willing to bet their own money. It's one thing if your horse you're picking is some big favorite. Okay, who cares? But if you go on TV and tell somebody, I like a 10 to one shot in this race, you better be willing to put up some of your own money. I, I doesn't have to be $100. It could be five or ten dollars if you're somebody that's in Bella, but it has to be an amount of money that you, you'd rather not lose, whoever you are. And I think one of the things that's hurt racing is too many people giving out picks on TV and different things that really don't take it seriously. And if you're not betting and you're not involved, it's hard. Now, I work with some people that aren't really betters. Um, Maggie Wolfendale, who works with us, who does our paddock stuff who, on TV. Maggie's not a better, but I, I understand. Believe me, Maggie's worse than me. She wants to be right as much as I do. So she feels that her opinions are skin in the game. And I, I understand that. And I, I don't put her in that equation. And not just because I work with her, because I see how much work she does, but there are a lot of people. And she also doesn't have the same role that I do. She's more talking about horses, how they look in the paddock, but people who are going on handicapping shows and saying, I like the three, four and six, they got to be betting something because when their picks suck, they should feel the pain that people who listen to them feel, or at least some of it. And it's fine for them to participate if people are doing well. But yeah, I, I want people to know, and I think they do, that when I suck, I'm, I'm taking a beating at the windows too. Yeah. So uh, how do I phrase this? I guess, is there a moral dilemma potentially exaggerated by the fact that we're in a global pandemic that's creating a recession or a depression, depending on how things play out, about you know encouraging people to bet at a time when there are lots of people out of work and maybe people shouldn't be spending money. They can't, they don't have. Um, I think racing at times is proven by the way, to be somewhat recession proof. And I think some of that is gambling that seem to people do that, but I think that's more of a past thing. Um, that's a good question. Um, Cause moral dilemmas are, 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 are an interesting question in general. Um, I, I'd like to think that we're not, doing something insidious. But listen, I mean, anytime you're involved with gambling or addictions, you are theoretically in some ways playing to people's weaknesses, right? Any kind of home shopping network is playing, I mean, right? Playing to the weaknesses of people who like to shop. And sports in this country are getting more involved with gambling. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, Adam, what separates Adam Silver from so many of the other people running sports leagues is he saw gambling coming before them and was ready to embrace it with the NBA where others may have been fighting it. So you could say we're all in the same boat, right? We're, we're, we're encouraging that. And let's face it, you can say what they want. I mean, you're, you've been following soccer and you know how much money is bet on soccer around the world. And, you know, football in America, do people, are they really kidding themselves and believing even before sports betting was legal that put NFL on Sundays, that it wasn't because people were betting on the games in some respect. So I think we're all in the situation of, you know, the morality police could call us in and maybe rightfully so. Do I think this time it's worse? I'd like to think no, 
because A, we're providing entertainment when entertainment's really at a premium. And if some of the cost of it is betting a few dollars, um, well, everything is, has some sort of cost to it. It's hard to take the responsibility for people betting recklessly, but, but I don't want to sit around and say, no, I take no responsibility. So I, I, I probably have to think about it a lot more. I think it's a, a very interesting discussion about yeah. all of us, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the way I justified it, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, he gives me tips, mostly on, on British racing. And we were discussing when Santa Anita had a race day the other day, sort of how much to bet on it. And we agreed that if we had gone there together, two Ubers, a lot of drinking, some food, our entrance tickets, you know, we probably would have dropped probably a couple of hundred dollars without the betting. So obviously anything we bet up to that is still cheaper than going there. So, um, and think I saved thousands by not flying back to Newmarket this year. So, you know, I, I can justify a little betting account. So it, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's, you, you'd like to think that you're not going to get somebody to do something irresponsible, but the reality is that, look, if we're doing our jobs well and we are attracting new customers, we're going to invariably get some that are going to act irresponsibly. I, I don't know. I, I'm not looking to defend that, but I also don't think that makes us pariahs. You know, it's at a certain point, there is personal responsibility too, but it, but it's a, it's a reasonable question and it's a reasonable discussion, I think. So sports betting in America is a very odd thing because it's broadly illegal in nearly every state. Obviously not the horses, but um, all sorts of other sports betting. But obviously everybody does it either through offshore illegal betting companies or through varying versions of um, the bets that they make with their friends or their local bookie and so on. But horse racing obviously is more legal than not compared to the other sports. Is everyone else going to catch up? And, you know, do you see in, I don't know, five, 10 years time in America, everything being broadly legal on sports betting? Is it inevitable? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you could say it's similar to the illegalization of marijuana, which is becoming more and more legal around this country. Um, it, I think the government, I mean, and I'm going to speak from my own personal feelings. I think the government plays a very... They walk a thin line with the morality police when they not only legalize lotteries all over the country, but they, they push them really hard. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these lotteries are basically just the numbers game that used to exist at an illegal level. And as the government wants to find more ways for revenue, I mean, why wouldn't they look at something like sports betting? Do you know anybody that wanted to bet on a football or a soccer or basketball game in the past and had trouble getting down? No, everybody that wanted to make a bet, just like anybody that wanted to get pot, was able to find a place to buy it, either now, legally or illegally. So I think the government starts to look at it and say, you know, why are we allowing this thing to go on? And A, gambling, yes, it's a vice, but cigarettes, liquor, you know, all these things, um, you know, they're, the lottery, once you've crossed from the lottery, you've crossed into the gambling world, right? You know, casinos have become legal all over the country and stuff. Why is sports betting so different? You know, they're, they're, the, the, the old school, that oh, it'll, it'll encourage fixed games. Well, as I'm sure you're well aware with Betfair, um, actually Betfair was able to uncover plans to fix games and they uncovered plots of that the, um, tennis game. There was a famous tennis game about a decade ago um, where because of Betfair and betting on sports, they actually were able to uncover plots to fix sports. Now you can say, well, they're only fixing them as they're betting, but people are betting anyway. 
So mm. I think it's inevitable that sports betting will be everywhere in the country sooner than later. Do you, do you bet on other sports? No, I used to bet a lot when I was a kid and I just kept losing. So I figured I'd try to stick to horse racing where I could maybe have a better idea how to lose. But given your love of numbers, so obviously there's the winning or losing bit, but you know, you love the, you know, solving mathematical problems as it relates to sport. So is there not a temptation to sort of, particularly on very stats heavy sports like baseball and basketball, is that not tempting just to prove yourself sort of mathematically correct as much as make money? If I wasn't spending 70 hours of my week, my waking hours on horse racing, whether actually physically working on it or doing the preparation, then yeah, I probably would. So yeah, you you mentioned this amount of research. I mean, is that right? So, you know, for an for a normal race card, how much prep are you doing? Well, it depends the time of the year. I mean, there are times in the winter where we're running eight, nine races and they're not that complex. So I can get most of my stuff done in about three hours. But during Saratoga and Belmont and even a lot of Aqueduct, we're running a lot of races days with 10, 10 races, sometimes more. It's a good five hours on average, I'd say, getting all my stuff done and sometimes a little bit more. Um, because because I think a lot of the stuff I do is to have information for television. So it's not necessarily it's handicapping related, but it's also things to talk about in the air and you want to be as prepared as you can. So I spend all that time and not that much of it is done at the track when I'm working because I'm on the air and doing other things. So between doing that preparation and spending, you know, seven hours or so a day or sometimes more at the track, you're talking about, you know, a good 10 to 12 hours a day, a racing day at least, and a little on off days. So in the five-day racing week, it's easily 60, 70 hours. Mm. Maybe more sometimes. Depends. How So how often are you genuinely surprised by a winner? You know, when, when, he, when a 25-to-1 long shot comes through and wins, obviously, you know, the bookies aren't expecting it because if they were, it wouldn't be 25 to one. But when those come through, how often is there one genuinely, not necessarily that you have, you, you haven't picked it, but where it really did come out of nowhere and you couldn't even have got close to thinking this horse on a good day might do well. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Probably once that, I mean, I don't want to act like I, I, I got all the answers, but surprising winners, once every few days, maybe once a week is a genuinely surprising winner. Um, I mean, listen, we had a horse that won and paid $196 for $2 the other day. It was 97 to 1. I would say it was surprising, but I, I could see I could never have bet it in a million years. I wouldn't call it the most shocking thing I've seen. You know, it was a horse that had just run once on the grass before. It was coming off a long layoff and, you know, had a lot of pedigree to handle it. So it just ran a much different race. You see that happening, you know, more with horses with experience a few every few days or so. I mean, listen, there will be horses that will win that will pay six to one that aren't, you know, favorites, but they're not huge long shots that I'll say, you know what? I'm genuinely surprised that horse won. I really did not think there's no way I could have bet that horse. There will be horses that win to pay $20 that I might I won't pick a win, but I might have my second or third choice. They win and they're big long shots. I think, yeah, I can understand the logic of horse I don't even like. But I say, you know what? I can understand the scenario where that horse won. There can be relatively short priced horses that I look and go, you know what? I, I couldn't bet that race. If they ran it again, I wouldn't believe that horse would win again. So here's a, this is a question where depending on how you answer this, I might just cut it out completely because it could be a really stupid question, but I have to ask it because I know this is a betting strategy used by my friend's mum, 
um, and by my <laughs> wife when we go I'm to sure the race. I'm sure it's really track. smart. Your, your friend's mom and, and, and your wife, that's got to be genius. Do horses with certain names end up with slightly skewed odds because more people might back them than, you know, the former loan allow? No, that's actually not a stupid question. Right. It's actually a very smart question. And it's funny because uh, my friend Greg Wolf, who's the host on our show, and I have a running thing on this, and I think he's finally beginning to buy my insanity. Horses with common names always open up at shorter odds than they should be. You know, John's Prayer. Well, yeah, you know, horses with very particularly common names in them, they if they're supposed to be at 15 to 1 shot, let's say, they'll invariably open up as one of the favorites. Their odds will drift higher and eventually they'll end up somewhere relatively close they should be. But early money or people betting their, you know, their families, theirs, but common name horses are habitually overbet in the early betting. Good. I feel better now. It's interesting. So I don't, you know, when I bet, I try and bet on form, but I have been known, particularly in a large field, to stick a, a, a small punt on a name-based one. And actually, recently, um, I put, for the for the Kentucky Derby, I, I put on my bet, I can't remember who I bet on with, with my sort of form horse, but then I was asked recently to describe my leadership style at work in one word, in the way that sometimes you are in these things. And I used the word authentic. So I stuck some money on authentic at eight to one. Um, wow. And it ended up winning, which was nice. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, that was my second bet, but I did it based on name. So that's not an unusual thing to do, presumably. Do you think that that paid for all the times you've bet on the names and they've lost? Well, now there's a question, Andy. So, you know, Dan, Daniel's destiny and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, no, probably not. Yeah, it's a, that's a very good point. It's interesting. I think I might do – I've been meaning to do this because I wonder – I'm trying to remember what it was now. I won a race betting on a horse. Well, I think the name was Bourbon something, um, and I just put, you know, a couple of bucks on it just because I thought it was an appropriate thing to do. And then I noticed there was a lot of alcohol-related names – and I'm wondering whether as a social experiment, I should I get like 50 bucks and bet a dollar a race or $2 a race on every horse that's got an alcohol-themed name and see where I end up with my money. Presumably, I'll end up down? Yeah, you won't win. Um, there's Well, there's a Bourbon Lane Stables, and they're like a partnership, and they name horses with bourbon in it. Right. Um, so that happens. I, you know, there's, it's funny. There, there used to be a horse named Archie. And Maggie, who I work with, and I just love that horse because we just love the name. You know, the idea that somebody gave a person's name, just the name, and sort of an off-the-beaten-path name, Archie. So Maggie and I always loved Archie. And there was a horse running on Saturday, I think, at Belmont, making its first start, and it was a brother to Archie. And I texted Maggie when I saw it in the middle of the week, and I said, oh, Maggie, we're going to be excited. Archie's brother is running on Saturday. And we joked about it, and the horse won. And I think it was a pretty big long shot. And after the race, I said, Jesus, I should have bet $10 on Archie. I bet one horse, actually, I think in my entire life based on its name. Um, a friend of mine had a first-time starter in over the winter, and the horse is currently racing in New York. It's actually not that bad. And the horse's name was Notorious RGB, and, or RBG, excuse me. And I saw it. It was the first race at Gulfstream, and I was sitting in my apartment in, I think, March or something. And I said, I have to bet $20 on the notorious RBG. I mean, how could I not? And it was like seven or eight to one. And it actually won. And I kind of felt embarrassed, but I was glad I bet the name. It was a great name anyway. Yeah, absolutely. 
So look, let's. You in in an old life, you were a trader. Um, options. Options. What are the similarities and differences between that life and what you do now? Um, well, I mean, I got involved in, in it um, working for somebody who was a, 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 a champion backgammon player. And in fact, when I first started trading, one of the people that worked with me on the floor was Eric Seidel, who anybody that plays poker is familiar with Eric. Um, and the options world actually, I think, changed the games world because a lot of games players in New York, you know, whether poker, but bridge and backgammon, when options started coming around and I guess the 80s sort of became a big thing, the games mentality was very well tied to the options mentality. And a lot of these people that, you know, were playing these games for, I don't know, I didn't know them that well, but I don't know if they were significant amounts of money, went down to the options and they were really smart people with this games mentality They made a lot of money. And it changed the whole games world because all of a sudden there was more money in it, more money to gamble. I think it changed a lot. And a lot of these games people drifted into options and made lots of money. Um, so the mathematics of that appealed to me, um, the mathematical structure, because in trading options, you're buying and selling options and trying to sort of increase, reduce your risk, playing options off each other. So it's more of a game strategy. It's more of a, of a math strategy of putting together positions that have opinions, but also some hedges where you're buying at one price and selling at a higher price in a perfect world. So how would I relate? I think it's more of a gambling aspect. I wouldn't relate it to handicapping per se. I'd relate it to betting um, because you can be a great handicapper and a terrible horse player because you bet badly. You can be a very mediocre handicapper and be a great horse player because you bet well. In fact, one of the most successful horse players I've, I'll ever know um, had a very mediocre opinion, but he has a brilliant mathematical mind. And uh, he, he, he was a great winning horse player because of his understanding of how to make bets. Because um, the idea is that you need to find ways to maximize your good, good opinions. And because at the racetrack, <clears throat> we offer so many different bets, exactas, trifectas, multi-race bets, pick threes, pick fours, pick fives. You know, what is the best way to take your horse? And if your horse is five to one, can you turn it into a 20 to one shot in a reasonable way where you're not, where you're taking less than four times the risk and understanding how to put together those bets. So that's the part of options trading is the mathematics of it that come into play with gambling, not so much with, with horse racing, not so much the handicapping part. Are you better at options trading or handicapping? I'd like to think handicapping um, options trading when I was doing it, when I first started doing it was very lucrative because the spreads were enormous. You were buying things for a dollar 20 and simultaneously selling them for a dollar 50. Well, an idiot can do that. You know, I mean, I hate to say it and I, a lot of people do very well. So you take an idiot is making money by buying a dollar 20. I don't want to make it that simple, but there was some of that for people standing in trading crowds Um then you take a really bright guy with a brilliant mathematical mind, and I don't mean myself, I mean other people, um, and you put in these things and they can structure plays and then they'll become extremely successful because they can sort of spread that out because they're usually not standing in crowds trading. But I was good at trading options when there was value to be had. But when I left the floor in 2007, the value had gone out and the whole options game is completely different than it was 15 years ago. At the very least. Yeah. 
So what do you think is, when do you think things will go back to a version of racing normal? You know, when will, you've already said, and I think you're right on this, that when things are, when people are allowed to go back to racetracks, that they may well go up in slightly higher numbers, at least at the beginning, because they would have missed it so much. But, you know, when do you think you can go to a racetrack and experience all of the things that you would have experienced any time up to February of this year again? I, I wish I knew. Um, I'd like to think by next summer. I'd like to think by the time the Derby comes around and Belmont Stakes we have in June comes around. I, I wish I had the answer to that. I, I, I really don't. Um, I, it's, it's a very tough question. I think it's the question that everybody's asking, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I read that they're right now the opening of Broadway won't be until June 1st. So I'll sort of fall in line with them and try to be optimistic enough to think by next summer. And I really hope that's the case because this sucks and it sucks for a lot of people. I mean, for me, I'm very fortunate, right. That I can work and what we're doing has gone through it, but, but, but I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I know that, you know, we in racing have done an amazing job. I saw a lot of credit going to the NBA and their bubble and how well it worked, which was true. Well, heck, we moved everybody up to Saratoga 200 miles north and ran for two months and there wasn't a single COVID positive. So, you know, we, we've done remarkably well considering how normally dysfunctional we are, especially. So I think we're ready to get it back going. But until there's, you know, a public health situation, it's not going to change. It's certainly not going to change in New York. And I don't think it should. Obviously, you love your horse racing here in America. Have you been to racetracks around the world? I've been to Longchamp for the Arc. Uh, and other tracks like Saint Cloud in Paris and, and Otoy. Um, I shockingly have not. I've been to Galway races once in, in Ireland. Um, a friend of mine got married in Galway. Uh, I have not been to races in England. I would love to go. I don't really want to go to Royal Ascot and wear a, a, a morning suit. Nothing about that appeals to me whatsoever. But I'd love to go to like English Champions Day is this weekend at, uh, at, 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 at in England and it's coming up and I'd love to go to that. And I'm going to do that as soon as, you know, I think I think all, a lot of us are suddenly looking at all the things we haven't done and said, OK, when we can do them again, I'm really going to finally do them. And I think that'll be the impetus I'll need to go to those tracks. But I'd love to go to Australia because they love racing in Australia. Yeah, they really do. It's interesting. See, I've been sort of thinking about things I would want to do again. And we used to go racing a lot in England. We went racing quite a bit in Germany when we lived there. But I've never been to a racetrack in America. I've lived here for six years and I just... You know, I've I've bet on things, but I've just not been to Santa Anita or any of them, even though they're quite nearby. But it's very much as soon as it's safe to do so, that's one of the things I feel remiss not to have done. Uh, Santa Anita is a great place. It, it, Santa Anita is an awesome racetrack. I love it there. I think it's the greatest track. Um, and I, you know, I used to go to New York a lot on business. I feel I feel motivated to time a trip so I can come to Saratoga at some point now as your guest ideally but um, yeah for sure yeah I'll, I'll, I'll set you up be my pleasure I'd love to have you come up Saratoga is a great place uh, look um, I've taken up a lot of your time um, you could have you could have prepped for well actually probably only half of one race in the time that we've spent on this podcast but um, the final question we ask every guest is if you could drink any whiskey with anyone dead or alive who would it be what would it be and where would it be oh wow um, oh, I'm not going to get, I guess now it can't be a family member. Um, I don't want to like, you know, I, I, would like to, um, sit down and, 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 and drink, um, some Blanton's bourbon with Philip Roth. 
Um, I'd like to hang out with him for a couple hours and, and talk to him about writing. And he kind of liked going to Saratoga to track because um, Yato is right there. And we could talk about that for two minutes and we could spend the rest of the time him talking about whatever he wanted to talk about. So I'm going to say for now, Philip Roth, where in, in the boxes at Saratoga during a beautiful afternoon of racing? How's Great. that? Perfect. That's a great answer. Andy Serling, thank you for your insights. Well, thank you. I had a great time. Mm, I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Sláinte